education hires a lot of consultants. In athletics, the consulting business is booming. There are search consultants, financial consultants, gender equity consultants, consultants to evaluate coaching effectiveness, and marketplace strategy consultants, just to name a few. As the number of available high school athletes begins to dwindle in the next decade, small and medium-sized schools are looking for a strategy to survive and thrive. Consider Western Michigan University as an example. Their enrollment is dropping Westerns by 5% in one year and 10% over three years. The Detroit Free Press reported in December that thanks to data collection, Western knows, knows when prospective students choose to attend other schools. They know that 21% choose to attend Michigan State and 18% have chosen to attend Grand Valley State. While it might make sense to make Western look more like Michigan State, their vice president of enrollment told the faculty and staff, not so fast. We can't be diet MSU and we have to change the perception that we are quote unquote, a backup school. They hope their next big idea will resonate, a place where students can explore careers, define passions and be cared for holistically. Painting a realistic financial forecast is essential for any trustee to have in front of them, and having an outside pair of eyes can go a long ways towards dealing with the reality square head on. Today I am joined by Lucy Lepofsky. She is an economist who consults, writes, and speaks widely on issues related to higher education finance, pricing, strategy, and governance. Her recent clients included Pitzer Colleges, Agnes Scott, the College of Worcester, and several others. In addition, she is actively engaged in research on price resets, tuition discounting, and cost containment. She also served as the president of Mercy College in New York. She'll help us understand exactly how institutions decide to add athletic programs and the financial calculus they are making in doing so. And we have Lucy Lepofsky today with us, who's the principal at Lepofsky Consulting. And we've been talking a little bit about small colleges and athletics. And Lucy, I know you've had a background as a college president, a college CFO. And so I also assume that your consultancy work includes small colleges. I'd like to zero in on that today, especially as it relates to athletics, especially as it relates to recruitment retention and graduation of all students. So you were just telling me about a situation at Goucher that might be great for folks to hear about. Oh, well, I was seeing it when I went to Goucher. Um, Goucher had a riding team and uh, my predecessor had decided it probably should be eliminated because it was quite costly. The horses cost a lot of money to keep and they had their own facilities, et cetera. And when I went and looked into it before moving on um, his recommendation, I found a few things. Number one, um, the riding attracted many full-pay students to the college, which, as you know today, are rarer and rarer to find. But riding is a sport that the wealthier tend to do. So that was something that was very advantageous to us. Um, and there is a correlation between socioeconomic status and academic ability. So they tended to be many of our better students as well. Um, in addition, it turned out that um, the community liked our um, riding program and many people in the community boarded horses at the college and so it um, bred good relationships. So rather than eliminating the program, we actually expanded it, added an indoor ring and um, enhanced its popularity and 
30 years later, it's still thriving at Goucher and the school is winning um, awards and has a great team. So um, you never know, although it in of itself cost money and was expensive, it had other benefits that um, were indirectly tied to it. And all depends on how you do the analysis um, in terms of how you assess whether a sport um, is advantageous financially or disadvantageous. Right, right. So, and, and you also mentioned to me that you kind of expanded even the community on campus who appreciated riding as well, right? Right, both the people on campus as well as the people in the neighborhood mm-hmm. who not only boarded their horses, sent their children for um, teaching there. We also, at least when I was there, had a special um, a program for children with um, special needs where we did riding for them. Um, and taught them writing and also helped our, was able to help our education students in doing that and was great um, work study for many of our students. Um, But beyond that, the community who supported writing in the area were also generous contributors often to the college. So, you know, it had a lot of external benefits um, as well as, you know, enhancing and recruitment of certain types of students. Sure, absolutely. Well, that leads us into to the main topic of our discussion today, which is really this, what to me seems like the beginning of a trend in enrollment stabilization for small colleges and universities today that know they're fighting the demographic shifts, that they know that the number of students coming out of high schools over the next several years will continue to decline. And they know that in order to even have a chance at attracting some of those students, they need to have a very robust athletics program. So because of that, they're adding more sports. And it's, it's unusual to me because I've seen a lot of cost cutting over the years and sports have been dropped. At the small college level, this seems to be reversed. Could you walk us through how a small college structures its, its budgets, its campus-wide budgets, and even how 50 new athletes could make a difference to a college? Um, sure. Well, I mean, structuring your budgets is a, is a tough one. Most of the schools today, you start with a budget and you add or subtract from it, depending on what your revenue projections are. Um, and they look at their enrollment projections. Um, they look at what their tuition is, but much more important than their tuition is what their net tuition, because today the average private college has what we call a discount rate of over 50%, um, which means that students, if your published price is 30000 the average, on average, they're collecting about 14,000 per student. Um, so that's the much more important piece of data. So when you look at a small, and, and so they take, they have to figure out how much revenue they'll have to decide how much they can support in their expenses. And as enrollment has been going down at many schools and as the discount rate has been going up, the challenge these schools have had has been um, to maintain the infrastructure that they have um, with less revenue. And so two things are happening. Some are, they're becoming more and more efficient as they can, but many have, as we call it, cut to the bone. Um, So their other alternative is to develop other sorts of revenue. And so those schools that have primarily been full-time undergraduate in the past are developing part-time programs, graduate programs, relationships with business and other sorts of things to diversify their revenue. But in order to bulk up or increase and maintain their full-time undergraduate enrollment, 
um, schools are looking to adding new programs and many are adding a lot of academic programs, primarily in the health sciences and cyber where there's market demand, but also adding programs in athletics. Um, and a, a new athletic program can often add many students to your, um, to your school. And the schools are in search of um, bringing in more students and being more attractive to students, differentiating themselves in the market. Um, and so, you know, some schools will look to expanding existing sports, adding a JV or other things there. You don't usually have facility demands the same way you may in adding a new sport. Now, a few schools will add football because that's a very expensive sport. But there are many other sports which you can use facilities that are already in place or don't have expensive facility needs. Um, and so schools look to adding those types of uh, sports. Um, among the small schools, they're either division one or two, uh, division two or three, usually in the NCAA. Um, division two, you can give athletic scholarships. Division three, you can't. Um, yet most of our students in most schools, everyone gets financial aid. So it doesn't necessarily make a great deal of difference whether the scholarship can be for athletics or whether it's just a what I call characteristic based or merit scholarship hmm. based on the characteristics the student has. Um, so a school can decide to add a sport and they will assess how many students that sport will take, what is a full team, um, how many students it's likely to increase the higher coach. And yes, you asked me about coaches' responsibilities. Coaches, besides having to um, run a team, operate a team, um, they also are usually charged with admission um, expectations to bring in the students. They recruit their team. And so um, a coach is an adjunct to the admission staff in um, all ways in terms of helping the admission staff increase recruitment of students. Um, one thing about adding sports is we find that most of our schools, the athletes have higher retention rates than students who aren't attached to a sport, in part because they are more attached to the school. They have um, a code advisor being their coach who um, stays close to them, often watches over what they're doing, their academics. Um, many will run study halls and other things. So at many schools, the athletes perform as well or better than the average students in terms of the academics. So bringing in another athlete will lead to over the four or five years they're there, um, you know, a long-term investment. So I, I just played with some numbers. If you, for example, have a sport where you bring in 50 students, and I'm just making the assumption you bring in a, a whole team of fresh, you know, whole team of freshmen right away right. you can um those students will assume at a school that has maybe a 50 or 60 percent graduation rate those students are likely to have a 70 percent graduation rate um so those 50 students over five years so today unfortunately too many of our students are taking five years will give you 183 um student years so to speak mm -hmm. um and those if you're, if this school, for example, charged $28,000 in tuition and had a 53% discount rate, um, they would bring in um, per year, their annual would be um, about 14,000 and then you have room and board. That's the other piece. 
most athletes will live on campus. So if they pay 8,000 in room and board, they'll bring in 23,000 a year um, per student. And so just in the first year, 50 students can bring you $1.15 million. And that cohort of 50 students, you'll ultimately um, graduate 35 of them. And over five years, you bring in $4.2 million in additional revenue from this group of students. And each year you would get to bring in some more students to fill up your team. Um, and then you asked me about, so, you know, bringing in these 50 students is gonna cost you something. Um, and it varies. Part of it depends on how close the capacity the school is. If the school isn't at capacity, then it's unlikely you'll need to add any faculty or student service support staff. So your only additional cost would be the direct cost for whatever the team was. And you probably would need a coach, maybe an assistant coach. Um, you would need the food that those students would consume because that's the only variable cost in terms of their room and board, their board cost. I'm making the assumption that you have um, vacant um, dorm residence hall rooms and vacancies in your class and then some operating expenses um, for your um, for the team, the bus, the supplies, the uniforms. So it could cost you a year as little as about two hundred and sixty thousand um, dollars to add a team, and they're bringing in over a million dollars in revenue. So you can see it's a very um, winning strategy. Uh -huh. um, you then asked me, what about facilities? You know, what if it needs a new facility? There, there are a couple of things. Oftentimes, you can use facilities that are there, or you can for a low cost, you know, rent space, you know, for example, if you're adding a golf team, you're not likely to build a golf course, you'll use a neighboring golf course. Um, and some of your sports can use what you have, um, you know, your fields and everything that may already be there. If you have to add a facility, then you figure out what your facility cost will be to build it. And usually you will fund it through bonds. And so you'll pay for it over you know, a 20, 30 or 40 year period. So your cost per year is not particularly high. And athletic facilities often are attractive to donors. Um, so you're likely to be able to get gifts to be able to support um, the facility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there, boy, I have a lot of questions from all that, but that's really helpful just to kind of walk us through the basic thinking process of, of how this comes to fruition. But here's my, my question. I, I, as we know that the, the number of high school students are going to be uh, slowing down and there's going to be more competition for those same athletes. Let's say there's competition for women's soccer or men's soccer or swimming or other kinds of sports that have traditionally been, um, I would say, middle to upper middle academic preparation and, and probably athletic achievement. How do you then, if every school is thinking in the plan that you're proposing, this is all we need to provide and at this cost, how do then schools differentiate themselves in a very competitive recruiting market? Uh, they have to differentiate themselves. Well, a couple of things. First, a school is likely to see where there's some unmet need. You know, if they look among their peers and the types of students they're likely to attract, what sports, if any, um, do they are not offered um, by the by the schools around them? 
Um, so for example, there are some schools in California that are looking at adding lacrosse. Um, apparently lacrosse is not a big sport out in California. So they're looking at adding it and recruiting more in the East Coast places where lacrosse is a big draw. Um, so, you know, clearly you don't want to replicate what your neighbors have. Um, so that's certainly one thing. But at the end of the day, students choose based on the academic programs, their relationship to the coach, you know, whether there's a connection, if they're an athlete between the student and the coach, um, and the value proposition of the school. How do they perceive um, what that school has to offer versus what they need versus what they're going to have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I also think you made a really important point about the room and board. I don't think enough cost uh, it, cost analysis goes into that. If you have empty beds, you, you've got to find a way to fill those beds as quickly as you can because that's a lost opportunity. So are there any strategies around besides uh, recruiting athletes around trying to fill those beds in other schools that are struggling with enrollment? Well, there are some schools that are offering um, highly discounted rates for rooms for look for students, you know, locally um, to encourage them to live on campus. Um, so you give, you know, special room and board um, scholarships if you live within 25 or 30 miles of the school um, in order to fill up the, the dorms, because not only is it lost revenue, but it, it also impacts the quality of life. You know, if your dorms are too empty, there's not the residential life that you want there. Um, there's um, making residence halls more attractive, offering more activities in them. You know, many schools are going to living learning communities, special dorms, language houses, um, special interest houses, you know, all sorts of things that will make the school and the residence hall more attractive. And then schools that are actually having major issues with unmet um, empty beds will try to rent to other schools that have shortages. Well, you know, and I've seen that uh, in the Philadelphia area, I've seen that model replicated a number of times. Now, I've also seen a number of campuses who don't have residence halls, but are still electing to add sports, particularly at the community college level. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that strategy? Um, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but clearly community colleges are vying for students as well as everyone else. Community colleges have a retention issue, and we know that sports, students involved in sports are much, like, much more likely to be retained. And so I think from a community college point of view, number one, it enhances the value proposition of the community colleges, community college if it's offering you know, more student activities. Um, it'll make the school more attractive to other students who like watching the sports. Um, and it's also likely to bring in students who will stay, complete the two years, and then transfer on to a four-year school. And many four-year schools um, are doing a lot of recruiting at community colleges. Yes, and, and a lot of articulation agreements as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I really like the idea that Goucher brought to the table, which was the idea of doing uh, horse riding and, and, and all the opportunities it created for them. I think that's a real win-win opportunity when you're, as a, as a college, trying to think outside the box using athletics. As you, you're right, lacrosse is a fast-growing sport in this, in this country, and I'm wondering if there's enough high school participation to keep up with the number of colleges that are adding lacrosse because it seems to be exploding. 
You know, I have no idea, but I'm sure college, high schools will respond to um, what's attractive at colleges. You know, there's no doubt high school students want to make themselves more attractive to colleges. We know that at the most elite colleges, for example, star athletes who are academically talented but not the top of the class will often get into the top schools over the students at the top of the class. Um, and so, you know, if, if lacrosse is what's growing and your school doesn't have it, there'll probably be a push to add it so that students can add it to their resumes. Absolutely. Well, Lucy, I really want to thank you for taking some time to talk with, talk with me and my listeners about this very important topic in higher education, because I, I just see a, a continuing advancement of more and more sports participation opportunities as a result of this demographic shift. So thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, Karen. Excellent. Take care. You too. While we can plan for the estimated costs of adding teams to stabilize or grow enrollment, we have to plan just as effectively to cover athlete medical care. Too many times we expect that athletes are fully covered under their parental medical plans. In today's landscape, that could be a very expensive misunderstanding for the athlete. Colleges have long skirted the rules for who is responsible for the bills not covered by insurance. Last week, I wrote a story in Forbes.com about Sedona Prince, a University of Oregon women's basketball player who was stuck with $22,000 in medical bills because of an injury she sustained while playing basketball. She posted this on Twitter. Quote, I usually don't like to open up about a personal subject like this, but I feel like it needs to get the attention it deserves. Due to my injury last year, I received a call informing me of the $22,000 I owe in medical bills, which has now gone to collections. As a 19-year-old collegiate basketball player, no one should have to go through this, especially since I was under the care of my institution during the time of the hospital visit. The university I now attend is unable to pay this debt because of NCAA rules, and I am now deeply saddened that I will carry this burden for the rest of my life. No student athlete should ever have to struggle with this or walk away with debt from playing the sport they love. I hope my past experience opens the eyes of many and prevents other student athletes from falling victim to the negligence that I have experienced." Unquote. As NCAA rules stand, she is not permitted to receive funds from any GoFundMe accounts established by fans and supporters. She is stuck with these bills, despite doing everything asked of her and suffering a tragic, nearly career-ending injury. This situation reminds me of Shabazz Napier, the University of Connecticut point guard who famously said in the 2014 Final Four, I go to bed at night hungry, to a worldwide audience. He made it plain that inequities exist for athletes being pushed to their physical limits and what the gaps are in the NCAA legislation. This moment is no different. I see this as a potentially galvanizing moment for the NCAA to address the issue of covering athletically related medical expenses too. No athlete in a Power Five conference should be left with medical bills, especially a school like the University of Texas, where Prince attended First, with a $200 million budget and has just 20 varsity sports to support. The need of change the NCAA made after Napier's comments was nearly breathtaking. Less than one month later, 
Schools were permitted to pay for additional meals and snacks. The same thing should happen for Sedona Prince and for others. Many people have lumped this issue in with quote-unquote pay-for-play for college athletes. I view it differently. It should be viewed as delivering on a promise. A promise to take care of those we bring to campus and call a member of our quote-unquote family. You can read more about Sedona Prince and her situation by clicking on the link in the episode epilogue.